about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hello, we're going to first read Acts chapter 15. So I'll let you turn to that. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God had at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Hey, I'm Rachel. Our second Bible reading is Galatians six twelve to 16, which is over... For Max. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. 
The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts as a new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Good evening. Great to be with you tonight. My name is Mike. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Newtown and Erskineville. And uh, we are getting back into Acts uh, for, it's just an extended series really, but at the beginning of the year we kind of, or the first, whatever, before, we were looking at that first part of Acts and kind of how the, the church kind of was birthed through, um, through the Holy Spirit being poured out, through, um, through persecution, through Paul's missionary journeys. And we've had Mission Week, and we're sort of getting back into the second half of Acts, and we're really looking at kind of how the victory of Christ, how His death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, how that kind of flows out from 2,000 years ago into now, but also how it was met with the challenges of persecution, of of culture clash, of of politics in the early church, and even now, how kind of the victory of Christ uh, creates challenges in all kinds of ways, and we've got to work out how that looks in 2018 as well. And today we're kind of going to dig into uh, the topic of grace, and I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we, we master grace, and I think that's kind of how God designed it. They wrestled with grace big time in this watershed passage, and I want us to wrestle with grace tonight. But um, before, we, um, before we get too much further, it's my kind of profound observation of the world that there are two types of people. Yeah, it's a bit cliched, but that's how it is. There's kind of extroverts and introverts, for example. There's, there's people who kind of have zero inbox kind of stuff, like with their emails. And then there's those people with kind of the little uh, red number on the app icon that's so massive. I don't know how that actually works for you guys or how you do life. On Facebook, I saw this week an engineering lecturer uh, walk into class and on his T-shirt, it's like there are two types of people in the world. One, those that can extrapolate incomplete data sets. That's the end of the T-shirt. And uh, someone puts up their hand, sir, what's the second type of person? I guess there's two types of people, right? <laughs> if that sinks in. <laughs> As we head towards this passage, I'm reflecting on the two types of people that I, you know, I've had conversations with through Mission Week and prior. Uh, during Mission Week, this guy comes up to me and he goes, can I tell you what I hate about the church? You would say, yeah, sure, wouldn't you? Like, so I say, yeah, yeah, okay, tell me. I hate the, the rules of religion. I was like, okay, I, I get you, let's talk about that. He hated the rules of religion. And yet I was speaking to someone else a little bit earlier, a, a parent who's kind of um, really looking forward to sending their kid to a religious uh, Christian school because that can kind of distill some, some rules for living, some religion into them, some moral compass, because that's the right thing to do, whatever that means. So on one side we've got sort of uh, irreligious, hate religion, hate rules, other person kind of actually craving those things, perhaps for their children. Reminds me of a story that Jesus tells to a crowd of, of two types of people, of two sons even. Uh, the younger son says to the father in the story, you might know it well, I wish you were dead, I wish I could have the inheritance that I get when you die so that I can live my life with all the freedoms I want, because I hate rules and religion, I want freedom. And then there's the older son in the story who loves kind of complying to the rules of kind of how the family works and he thinks he's doing really well by them and so he's got the father's approval, so he thinks. And with that kind of system of living for him, he can look down on his brother and say, what a jerk. (laughs) 
Jesus says both the sons are lost. Jesus likes doing that, doesn't he? He kind of, he takes people's trapped questions and he just breaks out of it and creates a whole new category. And I think that's what grace does, right? Grace, that kind of this radical gift, this undeserved gift. Jesus creates a whole new category of, of person, of people. Because of grace. And that's what we're going to unpack tonight. Because from these two perspectives, the religious and the irreligious, from those two perspectives looking into what's happening in the early church, wrestling with what is this thing grace? What are the implications of grace? That's where we're headed this morning. Well, this evening. It's been a long day. We start with that kind of religious looking in, the kind of the Pharisees the kind of the super religious of the Jews, they've been kind of doing a great job of keeping all 618 kind of commandments of the Old Testament, including circumcision and all that, and, and they can tick those boxes and they can kind of you know, look upon themselves quite proudly and look upon others kind of maybe a little less proudly. And they come to, um, they are saying amongst the believers, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. It's like, okay, Jesus, great stuff, grace, okay, sure, whatever, still got to do the law, still got to be circumcised. Now, before we kind of hate on them too much, you kind of, you kind of got to feel their predicament. What, why would they have thought any differently? I mean, the, the whole kind of identity, cultural identity is bound up in, in what they've been doing for, for millennia. Uh, they look at kind of the Old Testament. Um, even, even Jesus was a Jew, right? He kind of fulfilled the Old Testament. He was like the uber Jew in, in terms of how they understood, like, okay, sure, he was the serpent crusher perhaps of, of Genesis 3 or, or the one that, that the promises to Abraham was fulfilled in or kind of the, the messianic king uh, that was promised to David. So it kind of makes sense that, sure, it fulfilled the whole Old Testament, but you can't just jettison all that. I mean, what about all the, all the promises that God had made through all of that? Are we just going to kind of walk away from all that? Surely we've got to keep circumcision. Surely we've got to keep doing the law. Jesus didn't hate the law, did he? So it kind of makes sense that for them, perhaps, even as they look at Jesus and see what's happening in kind of the early church, surely you still got to do all that stuff, right? I guess with religion, you often sort of got to say, do what we do if you want to be part of us. And the Pharisees are kind of putting out those markers to say, look, we are God's people. We think we are. And if you want to be part of us, you've got to do what we do. And circumcision is a pretty important part of kind of our tradition and kind of what it means to be God's people. It has always been that way, will always be that way. And we've got to protect those boundaries. But when Paul and Barnabas speak of the Gentiles being saved, being converted, because they believed, not because they demonstrated obedience to the law, not because they were circumcised, but because of the gift of grace. People were both amazed and it caused quite a stir. What does this mean? What is happening? Something's changing. We don't like change, do we? I kind of get the preposterous, no, I didn't get this word right this morning either. I kind of get the ridiculousness of grace. <laughs> As I'm teaching scripture um, this week, we're talking about the 10 plagues and I'm trying to make it kind of 
fun and interactive. It's pretty heavy, right? But, um, you know, I'm saying, I said to the kids, I got year three and four, I said, at any point, Pharaoh, if you're familiar with the story, Pharaoh could have said, all right, God, I'm sorry, let's do it your way. But he didn't, and God's judgment kept, kept coming. And at each point, there was an opportunity for, for Pharaoh to say, okay, I've had enough. And he kind of did that, but kind of kept flip-flopping. And I said to the kids, do you know, because of Jesus, then I went through the whole Passover thing, because of Jesus, at any point in your life, no matter what you have, no matter what you have done, you can say sorry, and there's no judgment, but a gift of grace. Salvation just gifted to you. And their little heads went, <laughs> like, really? That's, it's just, just, just like that? You can just be saved like that? And as they kind of contemplated that, the next kind of second they're like, sorry Jesus, sorry Jesus. Um, and they're kind of, you know, they're having fun with it, I suppose. Uh, but maybe they cheapened it a little bit to think you could just keep walking through life and, and not sort of, not change anything, it just shoot up a little thank you, sorry kind of prayer. But the thing is, is grace is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. So, of course, the Pharisees are having a head explosion as they try and make sense of everything they knew about living for God and what God is doing in the outpouring of his spirit. And this issue for Paul is so central that he gives up or kind of he just pauses his kind of mission journeys. Like he's been based in Antioch where he's doing his mission journey thing and he kind of comes down to Jerusalem to meet with the council. And that's a big thing because Paul could have just said, actually, I'm doing some really good stuff and I'm seeing people saved all over the place. How about we just let the Pharisees have their little thing over in the corner and I'll just keep doing my missional stuff and I'll still be a superstar. Paul didn't really think like that, but he could have done. Instead, he's concerned for gospel unity. He's concerned for the, for, for the very message of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel. And while the Pharisees say, you need to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law to be saved, he's saying, absolutely not. You are saved by grace and grace alone. So he spends time with the council to share what's been happening. This council is like the first kind of council of its kind in the early church. Throughout Throughout early church and church history, there's been a number of councils where authorities of the church have met together to wrestle with a heresy or an ambiguity that they might cut to the truth of the gospel and the implications of that. And that's what's happening here. As they wrestle with this contentious issue of what is the basis of salvation, they meet together to make sense of the gospel and to clarify the gospel. And Paul wants in all the way. And it's the Pharisees who first bring their case about salvation through the law. And Peter and James are forced to reflect on all that Paul shares. And Paul's just kind of like, you know, we didn't expect this in a way, but we're just following the Spirit's leading here. They're sharing stories of how the Spirit just anointed people in in, in amazing manifestations, in in, in miracles, in in tongues of fire. Just following the Spirit's leading. They were saved. That's what was going on. And Peter's the first to stand up and speak to the council and reflecting on these things. And he says, look with me in verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, if you go back a few chapters, Peter had that vision, kind of the the animals come down in the sheet and they kind of 
They're all the animals you're not supposed to eat. And the Old Testament is like, no way, I'm not going to do that. And God says, don't um, call unclean what I have made clean. And he kind of like, oh, wow, you're talking about Gentiles. All right, I'm with you. And then he was kind of scared to go into the house of Gentiles. But all of a sudden he sees that God's actually doing something to, to save the Gentiles. And from his own lips, he shares the good news of Jesus and Gentiles are saved. And so Peter himself was reflecting on his own experiences. He says, there's God who knows the heart he knows your heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Not by works of the law, by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Peter is talking about Jesus Christ through grace creating a new humanity. No longer kind of, if you want to be part of us, you've got to do what we do. No, no, he's conflating kind of the us and them and saying, look, we're both saved by grace. Grace is the great leveler. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've got like a really messed up past, and you don't want to talk about what's going on in the past and you're ashamed to be here. If we come before the cross together, we are the same, saved by grace. Verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. We believe we are saved by grace. James also has some reflection to do. You know, kind of James was the brother of Jesus, didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and kind of family dinners would have been a bit awkward back in the day, where kind of Jesus is like the Messiah, and he's like, I don't believe what you're talking about, bro. Um, but after the resurrection, James kind of came around a little bit, so that he becomes even this leader in the church, and kind of Peter disappears out of Acts from this point forward, and James kind of continues to be a great kind of leader, uh, and, and he stands up, and he sees kind of the continuity between the Old Testament, that God's going to rebuild David's fallen tent, but he also kind of sees the discontinuity, that there's something new going on, and he reflects in the same way, it is not, it's my judgment, therefore we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Pick up the same stuff that Peter talked about, that we couldn't carry that yoke, he says, that was too heavy for us to carry, let's make it easy for the Gentiles. Do you know what? Grace unburdens the Old Testament people of God, the Jewish people, they couldn't carry the burden of the laws of the covenant. But grace unburdens. Grace says, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, what I have is yours. And while every religion says, if you do this, you get the approval of God or the deity or whatever, and then you can have salvation. But you've got to do this first. Jesus says, I love you and I forgive you and I gift you, me, salvation, eternity, new life. That is the starting point received by faith of Christian faith. But the Christian walk begins with salvation gifted and everything flows out of that. It is radically new. It's turned upside down compared to every other religion in the world. And it kind of, you know, as you try and practice grace, you kind of get why people are really struggling to understand it. I've known Jesus for as long as I can remember, and I'm still trying to practice grace. You know, I, I practiced grace with my kids, and I keep having to practice it. I keep coming back to the law. 
You know, I say to them, you clean your room or you will get no TV. No wonder the Pharisees didn't get it. I, I, I'm still struggling how to get it. Now, there are consequences to actions, and my kids need to learn that they do need to clean their room. But the predominant narrative of my family life can't be law. I'll crush them. As a youth pastor on the North Shore, I spent a lot of time with kids who felt they had to win their parents' approval. That wasn't a narrative of grace. That was a narrative of law. I don't want that to be the dominant narrative in my family. Salvation by grace reshapes everything, my parenting, my way of life, my presence among others. But there is an overswing of grace that's also an error. A parenting that says, kind of, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) That's messed up too. If the religious misunderstanding of grace is that you still need to do the law... Yeah, okay, Gentiles can join us, but they've got to do what we do. Or, hey, there's new people at church, but if you want to be part of us, you've got to comply to all these unwritten laws. That's the misunderstanding of grace from a religious point of view. There's also a misunderstanding of grace from an irreligious point of view, which kind of says, okay, they're in, you can now do whatever you want. Free tickets to heaven, free ride, whatever you want. And while Paul rails against the first error, the religious misunderstanding... James, in his speech, seems to start pushing against the other misunderstanding, that grace would just be a free ticket, and it doesn't matter what you do from this point. See what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to understand what the implications of grace are. It's not uh, law, it's not grace plus law, but it's also not this kind of free ride either. It's something new, it's something different. It turns life upside down. James finishes his talk by saying, okay, so we shouldn't burden... Uh, the Gentiles coming to faith. But it's my judgment, pick up with me here in verse 20, instead we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, uh, by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Huh. It's kind of weird, yeah? Like maybe if James said, okay, they've just got to keep the Ten Commandments, that would have made sense perhaps and been simple enough. Or maybe if he just said, okay, they've just got to love God and love neighbour. Let's fly with that. We'd be okay, okay, that makes perfect sense too. But he's gone with the strangled meat option and that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. What is James doing? Is he banging on a bit of religion at the end? Because this this kind of sounds like a bit bait and switch, a bit kind of added religion on the side, kind of like, okay, you can come in by grace, everyone's welcome, but there's actually these secret rules going on here. What is he doing? Okay, I think there's two layers to this. We're going to spend kind of a few minutes just unpacking what, what James is doing. I think there's two layers. The first layer is a, is a kind of highly contextual layer. And I can say that because Paul will say elsewhere, what is an idol? If there is one true and living God, an idol is nothing, and a food, food sacrifice to an idol also means nothing. But that's not what James is saying. James is saying, no, no, you shouldn't have food sacrifice to idols. So in the scriptures, I'm seeing kind of two reasons, perhaps, or two kind of different, different decrees even, except that Paul goes on to explain that if your brother with a weak conscience actually thinks an idol is a big deal and is troubled by what you do by eating food sacrificed to idol, then you should not eat. I think James is starting to say here, look, clearly we've got some contentious issues going on here. Okay, the Pharisees are freaking out about circumcision. Okay, and as the Gentiles come in with their kind of irreligious ways, Maybe we should just set up some kind of basic ground rules so that people aren't too offended when you kind of have table fellowship together. So that you might use your freedom because of the gift of grace 
to actually serve one another and create commonality, create space that you might journey with Christ together and unpack all the wonders of salvation together. It's a beautiful thing to think that our freedom we have in Christ is not just about our freedom and my individual freedom and kind of don't cramp my style. No, no, Jesus models for us a way of using our freedom for the sake of others. I mean, crikey, he gave up the freedoms of divinity to, to, to serve us, to model that, that beautiful gift of grace. And I think this is kind of supported in the text. If we look at verse 21, uh, James says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. He's kind of saying, look, people know the customs of Moses. So people are really familiar with the Old Testament laws and, you know, we're kind of continuing in some way all the things that God has promised and revealed himself in. And so people are going to come to this gift of grace with a whole bunch of baggage and let's just create this space where we can create some ground rules. Don't kind of do the sexual immorality thing or the strangled animals. Don't do any of that just so that we can have this kind of space where people can, can learn about God, receive the gift of grace. But there's a deeper level to the creeds as well, isn't there? I've said, read in some commentaries that if you look at the whole Judeo-Christian ethic, there's two major categories, two pillars, if you like, idolatry and sexual immorality. And both of those are represented, even in some, some strange particularities, but both of those are represented here. And we'll see kind of those two themes carried through the New Testament as Paul unpacks in in greater depth, that theological framework for ethics. But there is only one God, and we should worship him only, and idolatry is a big deal. We worship all kinds of other things in our actions and desires and hopes, and, and Paul will continue to say, as James says here, no idolatry, worship one God. And as Paul will unpack in 1 Corinthians, by grace your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what you do with your body matters. Sexual immorality is a deal still. Jesus cares about that. And so there's a deeper layer to the decrees going on here. Although they sound strange on the surface, what's happening here is that as we are saved by grace, we are called into a whole new way of life. It's not just a free ticket to heaven. It's actually being drawn into the kingdom of Christ rediscovering our identity, what it means to live the full life, what it means to glorify God, and that's got a shape. The thing is, as you think about that and maybe the ways that you've fallen and stumbled and messed things up, God's grace is sufficient for you. You are still saved by grace, even if you have transgressed in these ways. And every day you are renewed. You are called to follow Christ and to glorify him. The thing is, is we need to see the way grace transcends the whole two types of people thing. Because the grace of Jesus is far more inclusive than any kind of modern liberal inclusivity. But the grace of Jesus also calls us to a greater purity than the law ever could. As I've been wrestling with this passage... I see underneath the whole two-person thing and the whole passage really a heart problem. You know, I, I've been saved by grace. I know that. I've, I don't know a time that I didn't know Jesus. 
you know, praise God for my family and the way they brought me up and the people that have spoken into my life. And yet my heart continues to seek and find approval in the way I do things. Of the two people thing, I kind of have this bent towards religiosity. Maybe it's my engineering thing, I don't know. But I just keep finding ways that I want to seek God's approval, like, look at what I just did, God, isn't that amazing? I just had an interaction with Kel the other week where I said to her, just, I didn't even think about it, I just said, hey, look, I cleaned the bench. And she's like, who cares? I clean the bench all the time. What, what's, what's, what's going on there? What do I want from her? I, I, I crave approval from others, from God, because in my heart I've got this checklist of kind of what a good person looks like, what a good Christian looks like. And what the worst thing about that religious bent means is that I then put that grid over other people and start measuring them and where do I compare? Why do I do that? Martin Luther's the great reformer, his fundamental insight was that the principle of religion is the default mode of the human heart. The heart continues to work in that way even after conversion to Christ. And so I keep having my heart laid bare by grace. I don't need to win God's approval, seek it, crave it. I have it. He has made me a co-heir with Christ because of his gift of grace. I don't need to impress people. I need to impress God. I don't need to judge others. I need to be unburdened. But this heart condition is also work in the irreligious worldview. So if my bent is towards religiosity... I have a fair idea that we are now swimming in a world where kind of the bent is the other way. Kind of the, you know, let's just embrace tolerance and inclusivity and that's the end of the story. But that also has a burdensome hard edge to it. Rowan Atkinson um, has been on videos in Facebook and on the internet this week and he's calling out the intolerance of the new tolerance. And that's not a new phrase, but I'm just surprised that Mr. Bean's now on it. Um, He's concerned that the so-called tolerance of our liberal society is becoming all, sorry, authoritarian despite its key virtue being tolerance. He cites a few examples. Uh, a cafe owner arrested for showing a Bible verse on TV in a shopfront window. A teenager arrested for calling a police horse gay. That's kind of weird. Um, a man arrested for calling the Church of Scientology a cult. I mean, his, his answer to all this, as he kind of just calls it as it is, is that we just need to air all kind of the stuff we've got to say and stop being so sensitive and kind of as we talk about it in public dialogue, we'll just sort it all out. I think that maybe it's a little naive. But I appreciate the sentiment that this new inclusivity actually has a hard edge to it. When you don't play on those rules, you're actually excluded. But beyond the hard edge of left-leading liberalism or what I just call mainstream now, my deeper concern is the exclusion that exists between the spheres of self-governing autonomy, that kind of pleasant interaction of whatever makes you happy. And in that kind of interaction where we're just spheres bumping up against each other, we have diminished our ability to actually speak meaningfully into each other's lives, to be vulnerable, lest we offend another person and just reply with whatever makes you happy. And we barely have time to kind of go into this any deeper, but as I look at what the church is wrestling with the implications of grace and as I kind of sort of look at how things are tracking in our world, it seems to me that the power of modern liberal freedom is in exclusion. You, you don't play by the rules, you get excluded. The power of religion is in burdens and punishment. If you don't do the right thing, then there is guilt for you and divine punishment even. 
Jesus cuts through both of these categories. He cuts through your heart, through whatever spheres and constructs you've been building. The power of gospel freedom is grace. If you fall, if you transgress, there is grace. I think our culture needs grace more than ever. I disagree with you. I'm insulted by you and I'm still going to love you. And I don't think the resources for that kind of grace comes in the humanism dream. I think the resources for that kind of grace can only come in the cross of Christ. I know that because I not only insulted God, but I deserved his judgment and yet Christ died for me. When Peter says in verse 8, God knows the heart, Peter knows that. He denied Christ three times. He's flipped and flopped all over the place and yet Christ still loves him. His grace is sufficient for him. Jesus cuts straight through our need for approval that we think we've won in our religious constructions. He cuts straight through our bubble of self-defined freedom with all its buried guilt and shame. He knows it all and went to the cross for us. Not so that we could be circumcised. Not, I mean, that's what the Pharisees want, all of that plus circumcision. No, not so that we could be circumcised, but that Christ would be cut off. For the cross of Christ is about Jesus being cut off from God's blessings for our sake. And do you know circumcision, if we could just drill down into this just a little bit awkwardly, circumcision was about enacting the covenant curse, a cutting off of, of bloodshedding. You know, the whole kind of covenant thing, ratification of covenant in the Old Testament times, was a, a symbol of, you know, you, to, to kind of ratify a covenant, you would enact the covenant curse. And in circumcision, you were basically saying, you know, if we break the covenant, we will be cut off. But we're doing this kind of thing, knowing that we're in covenant now and we want to keep it that way. But the thing is, is Jesus took on the curse of the broken covenant to renew a new relationship, a new covenant, a new way of being with God. And he did that despite our failings, because of our failings and because of his grace. He was cut off for our sake so that we might be saved. He knew my heart. He knows your heart. He knows my propensity to break the covenant, to load up my life with religion and burden and self-approval. And he died for me. He opened up a new category of humanity for us to discover, enjoy, and be filled with his blessings. It's not about what I did, but what he did. There are two types of people in the world. And they both need grace. They, we, need to live out the radical freedom of grace. To discover its calling upon our life. And discovering the liberation of grace. That we might be renewed each day. A grace that saves. A grace that calls us to purity. A grace that is sufficient. Whatever your story tonight. Whatever the burdens are in your heart, whatever is weighing you down, whatever guilt you've buried, Christ's grace is sufficient for you. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.